Hello, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. It's said that money makes the world go round, yet India has often been conspicuously absent from discussions on the history and significance of money. So here to challenge all that, we're joined today by Professor Stuart Corbridge. Stuart is the Vice-Chancellor of Durham University and over the past 25 years has made extensive contributions to understanding the geopolitics of money, as well as wider issues related to governance and governmentality in contemporary India. He's here at the Australia India Institute this week to give a keynote speech on money. So Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Trent. So how does money serve as a useful keyword for understanding contemporary India? Well, I think money is like a lot of Raymond Williams's key words in this case. It, it's a guide to a whole series of other words. So my paper starts with an account of absence, which you just mentioned. The fact that money in many accounts of India is absent, if you look at the debt crisis, for example, or inflation. But it also takes us into accounts of, of distribution, of trust, and of, of the way in which people understand and relate to money. Money's, of course, been very prominent in India the last few months in the wake of the Modi government's demonetisation drive. For those of our listeners who don't know, late last year, the government made what was, at the time, quite a, a surprising move of withdrawing all large currency notes from circulation um, with new notes issued shortly after. Could you give us a bit of a background on what the government's demonetisation drive was all about? You know, how did it come about and, and what was it supposed to achieve? Well, it's not the first time India's done this. In fact, it did it in uh, 1946 and again in 1978. The basic idea is that a large amount of money in India is in the black economy. That is, it's not available for the government for purposes of taxation. The usual estimate is it's somewhere around a quarter of the Indian economy is black. So this is an attempt to turn the black economy, if you like, into a white economy, a clean economy, by bringing banknotes that should have been uh, within the government's purview into the banking system, actually by taking them out, hence the word demonetization. And uh, given your prior research on corruption and the ways that money sort of changes hands in India, do you believe that demonetization will prove effective in achieving that goal? Well, it's really interesting that when I sat down to write the paper in January, I think the, the politics of demonetization were running badly for Modi. Um, inevitably, demonetization has to be done quickly overnight. There has to be a large amount of secrecy. And clearly that did work. Huge amounts of people were taken by surprise. But precisely because they were taken by surprise, it caused a huge amount of difficulty for ordinary people, never mind the people um, that this measure was aimed at. But we've just seen recently that Modi has won a, a landslide election in India's most popular state, Uttar Pradesh. So in that sense, it seems to have worked reasonably well for Modi. Mm. He's re-established himself as a strong man, a decisive uh, political leader. Whether it's had any effect on the black economy, I think is far more problematic. It assumes that there are wealthy individuals in India who simply have huge stashes of banknotes in the country that can be brought under government control. I think that's highly unlikely. Most of the proceeds of corruption are probably overseas in Swiss bank accounts, for example. It's often said there's over a trillion dollars worth of Indian money in Swiss banks, in real estate, in Benami land transfers, in all sorts of 
other means of accumulation. So I doubt that it's had the effect that Modi wanted. Mm. Do we have any positive economic indicators that would suggest it's been successful on, on any front? I don't think there are any positive economic indicators as yet because the initial economic indicators were, were negative. I mean, it clearly led to a contraction in the Indian economy. You need money, of course, to enable transactions to take place. So if you withdraw it precipitously, you are going to get an immediate slowdown in the economy. So I think that's point number one. Point number two, I think, is demonetization makes certain assumptions about the effects of corruption, if you like. So I think it depends very much on how the proceeds of corruption are put back into circulation. And there are plenty of examples from around the world. Think of South Korea, think of China, which have been remarkably corrupt. But nonetheless, the proceeds of corruption have been played back into the circuits of economic accumulation. In India, I think that's been less evident. A lot of the money has probably been frittered away in conspicuous consumption. But it's not immediately clear that if the black economy is brought, as it were, into the white economy, that will increase the rate of growth of the Indian economy. Mm -hmm. At least not in the short term. Not in the short term. In the longer run, possibly it will allow the government, if it works out, of course, to make more effective use of public money for public spending and public distribution. Mm -hmm. But I think as yet, there's no clear evidence of that. I guess the, the other view that's been floated about demonetization is that this was actually about encouraging a shift towards a cashless society. Um, do you think that that's a realistic prospect? Not in the short run. Um, I think for many of the people who've been the victims of demonetization, people in rural areas, people without access to banking systems, the cashless economy is still some way off. Now, as you mentioned before, this wasn't the first time that India's removed large currency from circulation. How does this demonetization drive compare to the previous ones? I, I'm not sure. I don't know too much about the what happened previously. I think, you know, if you go back to just prior to independence in 1946, there were concerns amongst the colonial rulers that certain trading classes in India had benefited from the war effort and that was an attempt to discipline that particular fraction mm. of urban capital. In, in 1978, of course, this was the, you know, the politics of dealing with the legacies of the emergency and Mrs. Gandhi. I don't think there's any particular evidence that on either occasion demonetization was effective, nor was it, I think, on the scale of what's happened this time right. because the 501,000 rupee banknotes make up about 85%. I see. All banknotes in circulation. Now, if we take a, a broader historical perspective, how has India featured in the history of money? It's featured, I, I think, in so many ways. Money is fundamentally, as I've mentioned, a trust relationship, but it presupposes certain counting systems and certain modes of calculation. So I think you can say without stretching an argument too far, that the introduction of zero into European counting systems through Arabia, but originally from India, was central to the production of modern forms of calculation and thus to money in its modern sense. Particularly, one thinks of the work of Fibonacci and his book Libra Bacci, which is really about methods of calculation. Mm. You can imagine that when you only had Roman numerals, it was far more difficult to do calculations mm. than with 
a system with a zero and something like right. the decimal system of counting. Mm. Bookkeeping would be a nightmare. A <laughs> absolute <laughs> nightmare. More recently, of course, the colonial control of the space economy was very much bound up with debates about whether silver should be the base metal for India or gold, or indeed whether paper money, metallic money is fundamentally non-valuable in themselves mm. currencies should take their place. And that was very much the work of the uh, the Finance Commission and the work of Maynard Keynes just before World War One. Right. So it's only at that time that India transitions away from silver as currency. India transitions away from silver as currency, as a base currency at the end of the 19th century. There were then a number of people that thought that gold had to be the, the anchor for, mon for a monetary system and indeed that gold sovereigns should be the principal means of circulation of money in India. I mean, mm. The difficulty with that, of course, is that whilst gold serves very well as a store of value, it's not particularly effective as a means of circulation. So mm. the whole point of Keynes's work was to argue that Indians should move away from gold to a gold exchange standard system where basically other forms of currency would circulate in relation to a fixed point of gold. Right. I imagine it would have taken quite a while to, to develop the kind of trust in, in paper currency to allow it to circulate. Yes, I mean, I'm sure that that's the case. And I think, uh, you know, the director of the, the Institute here, Craig Jeffrey, has spoken about this. Even in recent times, the introduction of paper money, mm. the 100 rupee note, for example, into remote areas of India has been met with a degree of skepticism. People mm. might consider that it's worth 70 rupees, 80 rupees. Trust has to be earned. And we see this all over the world. Uh, Michael Tausig has written about it brilliantly in a famous book about the devil and commodity fetishism in, in Latin America. Mm. So people have to come to have trust in money. I mean, I think most famously of all, if you look at the American banknote, it says, in God we trust. Mm. Uh, and maybe the Americans do, but that's not fundamentally what they're placing their trust in. Mm. The trust is in the Federal Reserve. Mm. Which speaks to another issue which, uh, which you'll be talking about tomorrow night, which is the importance of the iconography of money in, in sort of establishing trust. Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine way back in the 90s, a guy called Kevin Jackson, wrote a book, I think it was called The Oxford Book of Money, which looked particularly at the iconography of banknotes. Indian banknotes have always fascinated me. Um, you know, whether it's the, the 100 rupee note, the 500, the 1000. If you look closely at them, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, they're telling a story about what India wants to be, what it is and what it wants to become. Hmm. Um, so if you look at the back of many banknotes, you see not only women um, transplanting rice or plucking rice, you also see the great dams that are associated with Nehru and modernization. Mm. And on the front, of course, you will see Ashoka's column. You'll get ideas of inclusivity in diversity, the, the many regional languages in India. They're all there uh, on those famous banknotes. Okay, Stuart, it's been really interesting and certainly a very timely discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, that's all for today. See you next time.